In order to understand sort of why we're doing what we're doing, it's important for me to give you some context as to who I am and what my story is. So the first chapter of my story started when I was a small child. I remember feeling that I was different to other kids. Not just different, but kind of bad. There was no real sort of underlying reason in my mind, but the guilt was palpable. I felt like there was iron ore sifting through my blood of just sadness and guilt. I remember my mum and I sitting outside a grocery store when I was about eight years old and I was touching the dashboard of her car repetitively and blinking saying the word God. She looked at me obviously incredibly confused and worried and said why are you doing that and I said I don't know I just always feel upset and doing this makes that feeling go away. She'd noticed me switching on lights 50 times, folding my clothes for hours and taking a long time to finish my homework because I was rereading sentences over and over and over. So we went to the doctor and I remember them handing me a book on anxiety and being told that I suffered from this thing called obsessive compulsive disorder. As a child, I had no idea what that meant, but I remembered thinking that the doctor told me I was broken and I saw that my mum was upset by what I was doing and so... I felt horrible that I was, um, I had turned out to be a monster in my mind and I was causing distress to myself and my own family. Uh, I refused to go to therapy. Um, I internalized it all and I squashed it down, along with many of the strange compulsions and behaviors um, that I was experiencing as much as I could. The second chapter was kind of in my teenage years when things started to explode out the side of the pressure cooker. Life on the outside was incredibly normal and incredibly privileged. And that's part of the reason why I do what I do today is um, I feel that gratitude needs to be translated into action. I was living in one of the most affluent and beautiful suburbs in Sydney, in Australia, uh, in a big four-story house. I had a lot of friends, got invited to all the parties with the cool kids, had a long-term girlfriend at the time, excelled in school, all the rest of it. However, as time went on, my mind continued to spiral. I started to experience random panic attacks throughout the day. I'd always been a deep thinker, but the rumination was getting heavier and stickier, um, unbearably so. The OCD took new forms, where I began fearful of... You know, I began to be fearful of touching people inappropriately. Um, I had to walk around with my hands underneath my armpits through the schoolyard in case I brushed up against someone or um, I didn't want to stand around knives in case I grabbed a knife. I didn't want to stand around ledges in case I threw myself off a ledge. No one knew I was doing all this weird stuff. Um, my emotional wounds started to become infected I'd have feelings that I was going to lose control at random moments throughout the day. I felt like a complete stranger to myself. It was the hardest feeling in the world to describe, which made it even harder to feel like I wasn't completely losing my mind. I felt foggy and distorted and unstable. 
I remember taking a trip to Thailand just after high school and I was sitting on the beach drinking a beer and remember thinking, I don't want to be here anymore. I couldn't leave my hotel room because walking down the aisles of the shopping centre, the lights were like piercing daggers. Um, I just stayed in my I stayed in my room. I told everyone that I had food poisoning. Like every other time in my life that I didn't want to go out, I just made up an excuse. My world sort of felt like it was collapsing and no one could see it but me. My mum was the only person I could really talk to and the only reason that I didn't completely lose my mind and, and haven't to this day. Um, but even she didn't really understand what I was going through at the time. I was convinced that I was on a steady slope to insanity. The third chapter was me as a young adult. So I finished high school. Um, I got accepted as the youngest intern at Microsoft, um, about halfway through my university degree where I was studying commerce at Sydney Uni. And at Microsoft, I, I got promoted rapidly. And by 25, I found myself in Seattle. After a few years in Australia, I got transferred over to be in a global role as a product marketing manager, leading some of the company's biggest launches in the hardware space. I was driving a Porsche, flying business class around the world, working on some of the hottest products in the tech industry. And as a young guy, that was super appealing. I was speaking at global events, um, mixing with celebrities, meeting people from all over the world. On the side, I was running a DJ business. I was getting certified as a yoga teacher, running marathons, eating loads of pasta because that's what I love to do. And just generally, by all accounts, on the outside, I was killing it. Well, that's what my Instagram said, at least. The stress was high and constant, equally matched by my ability to hide my inner world. For some reason, my old coping techniques started to lose effectiveness. My internal dialogue started to get worse and worse as time went on. Looking back on it, this is a combination of what everyone goes through in their mid-20s, where you sort of have your first existential crisis, I guess, of figuring out who you really are, mixed with work stress and unattended issues from childhood that started to bubble to the surface like a volcano. I was dramatically losing faith in the hope that I was helpable. I tried everything from distraction techniques to yoga to meditation they were all fine to provide some relief in the moment, but they, they didn't replace the huge chunk of fear and deep suffering caused by not knowing who I was or what I was going through and how my inner world could never f really feel aligned to my outer world. I couldn't find anyone who could help me. Every time I went to see a psychologist, I didn't really feel like I clicked with them, so I thought that I needed to figure it out on my own. I applied to do my Masters of Clinical Psychology at Columbia University in New York and somehow got accepted. I put my job on hold at Microsoft and flew over there to begin my first semester. I remember on the first day of arriving, I had this overwhelming realisation that this is what I was put on the earth to do. Without a doubt in my mind, I wanted to help people become whole and find peace in their mind. I had an equally overwhelming realisation, though, that I couldn't help anyone in the state that I was in and had been in my entire life. I needed to work through some of my own stuff 
so that I could be in service to others. I guess I thought that that was going to be a choice, but it turned out um, that it wasn't a luxury um, or an option. I would make this courageous leap towards my life calling, um, but I didn't jump. I fell hard. The quality of my mental health was deteriorating yet again, and I remember my roommate had to put his arm around me at one stage um, when I came back to Microsoft, and I had to leave work one day. I was so anxious, and he was trying to help me get to the car, and I remember he said, 10 steps to go. And life had broken down to to a step-by-step goal uh, in the most literal sense. And the volcano was now overflowing and I didn't really have a choice um, of do I want to confront my issues, do I want to make a leap towards my true calling or any of that. It was, it was My life was being turned upside down without my consent. It was at this time when... I I didn't have any more room to break that I would break again. My fear was that I was going crazy and I found that I found out that I not only had OCD but a spectrum of anxiety disorders and depression and uh, now a newly discovered illness called depersonalization disorder. Again, I didn't know what that meant at the time other than confirm that I had no stable sense of self of who I was. Time was running out. In a desperate lunge for safety, I took annual leave from Microsoft and flew to a specialist mental health clinic in the middle of Louisville, Kentucky, where it's kind of in the middle of nowhere, I guess. I went to my room, I lay on the floor and uh, broken in a thousand pieces, I was rocking back and forth, crying yet again, wanting the pain just to go away more than anything. In that moment, I actually picked up my computer and um, I recorded a video which ended up going quite viral um, of me in that hotel room asking for some type of peace, some type of relief um, for a miracle. I'm recording this um, in a hotel room in Louisville, Kentucky on the 6th of September 2016. I don't know why I just picked up my computer to do this, but the feelings that I've felt over the last 26 years, I wouldn't wish them on my worst enemy. I've been through the fire. I've been right into the deep belly. The worst place in the world. And I never want anyone, ever, ever, you have to feel this. You have no idea, no idea what people go through. And I will devote every second of my life, if I get through this, to making sure that no one has to go through this again. And a miracle did occur. Um, it's not one of those stories where life just got better by any means. Um, I would break many, many, many more times before uh, I felt some type of inflection or momentum change. But it happened when I came back to Seattle from traveling around the US and after starting my degree and all that stuff. And I opened up my um, computer page uh, on, on YouTube and I was lying in bed, absolutely helpless, completely down and out. I had nothing left. 
and I somehow stumbled across this guy's video and he was also in his bedroom at the time with a webcam and uh, he wasn't someone famous, he wasn't a content creator or anything like that and he had this book that he was reading from and I guess he was he had written down his story and was sort of talking about what he'd been through, similar to what I'm doing right now and I couldn't believe how similar his story was to mine. He he was putting words to feelings and thoughts that no one had ever done or come close to doing before in my life. It was it was really the first time ever that I didn't feel alone. I had kind of been exiled for decades from my own body and someone had said it's okay to come home. Every cell in my body was 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 craving someone to say, yeah, I've been there before, I get it. And without even meeting this guy in person, he had given me that that gift. You know, this guy on the internet on the other end of the camera had met my deepest need to feel accepted. H- how could this be? How could I experience this tectonic shift in my mind without changing anything to do with my anxiety? or the OCD or the depersonalization or anything. It was simply by feeling connected to someone else, I'd gained an infinite, an infinite amount of space to finally see myself for who I was. I didn't suddenly get better. It was, and still is, a managing journey. But I would definitely go downhill from there. But what it did after seeing that story, my whole life changed because I now had a platform that I'd never had before, that everything else that I was going to use to cope with and build on that's allowed me to get to this point today would build on. I had somewhere to put the pain. And that I kind of had this realization or this understanding of that pain and suffering were truly two different things. And that someone's story and the power of being connected had the potential to change my life and therefore surely someone else's. So I guess in that I had this this thing that I couldn't let go of, that that a life narrative, someone's life narrative and the inability to accept oneself for who they are um, means that we're avoiding the pain of of some deeper hurt. And it's in the process of avoiding that pain where suffering comes from. Until we're willing to accept where we are and who we are, no other building blocks will stay upright. The Jenga pieces of medication or therapy or meditation or whatever we put on top of an unstable sense of who we are, where we've come from and all the rest of it, it just falls over. So when I came to realize that one man's courage of um, owning his life and truly being vulnerable and authentic um, could change mine, I was, I was hopeful that I could do the same one day, that one day I could, could use what I'd been through to make one person feel less alone. So I quit my job at Microsoft, moved back to Australia, and I, um, I drew a heart on my arm, and I went down to the beach with a video camera, and I told my story. 
and I posted that video to Facebook and I said, I'm wearing my heart on my sleeve. If this relates to you, um, you should too. Draw a heart on your forearm and upload a picture to social media with a caption explaining how mental health has affected you or someone close and how you've grown and what you've learned from the experience. Find In a week that, that video had reached a million people and within a few, uh, a few weeks a global movement had been born where people all around the world started to share their story and they felt like finally social media was a place where they could come to be seen and feel heard for who they were as opposed to the usual feeling of inadequacy and I'm not good enough that, that technology and social media would often bring. You know, exploring this concept of why is it that we so often mistake pain and suffering as the same thing? Where is that connection and where is our story that we need and why, why aren't we using it? And I realized that in life there's kind of two layers, which is what we're going through and then our relationship to what we're going through or our feeling about it. And often it's it, the meaning that we make from our experience is different from our experience because we filter everything through this layer, this meaning-making layer called context. And so often the right context is missing Mental illness can kind of, in my opinion, be defined as over or underactive defense mechanisms where the brain hasn't made meaning from something appropriately and so it defends itself from a truth that might be painful to our deepest self. And I think there's, there's multiple reasons why that's the case and it's all, it's all a good thing. Our, our brain is trying to protect ourselves, But... You know, genetically, from a, from a nature perspective, we are hardwired to distort context. Our emotional brain dominates our life, um, and neuroscience supports that. It's not until we're two and a half that our left or logical brain comes online and starts making sense of our right emotional brain that doesn't even understand words before we actually can go, oh, when I feel this, this means this. And that's the case our whole adult life is our emotional brain is the way we lead. It is the first iteration of, of how we ingest the physical world and then make meaning from our experience. And trauma, if we've had any type of trauma, and I don't mean trauma in the way of bombs exploding or anything like that necessarily, of course that's, that's true. But, but pain is another word for trauma and pain's experienced by everyone. And little bits of accumulated pain, particularly interpersonal conflict or an inability to feel loved by people that we want love from, does extreme damage to the brain of this very sensitive circuitry whereby the nature or the environmental story comes into play. We're already hardwired to distort context because we're trying to determine threats more than we are happiness. That... The stories from other people around us who are raising us, and even as adults who are involved in our everyday life, they haven't worked out their own story. Actually, research shows the most powerful predictor of a human's thriving in life is the nature of their parents' story. It's also proven that you're very likely to have the same narrative profile that your parent had. So what that means is that the people around you, whether it's your parents or your caregivers or your friends, 
if they haven't worked through their own shit, if they haven't sort sort of cleaned out um, the clogs in their own pipes, you know, the, their own memories, their own childhood, their own "I wish my life was," "I'm shameful of," all those things, then they're subconsciously or unconsciously cooking in the background and displaying themselves and playing out in their life every single day. And so by default, we as humans are an amalgamation of so many other people's stories, so many other people's pain that we then take on board as our own. And so, of course, mental health and mental illness is, is a mixture of, um, of genetics, biology and all that stuff and our environment. But two things. A, the genetics part and the nature part is hardly ever considered in our story. We just blame all of our symptoms or shortcomings on the driver as opposed to the engine. And the second thing is that if we don't consider ourselves as part of a larger ecosystem and we don't look at how our environment affects our mental health, And we don't look at how our context is often distorted. And so the meaning that we make and place along our life's journey is incorrect. Then we also don't realize that our narrative is changeable. So we effectively fill in the gaps with distorted and incorrect information our whole life from tiny things where a throwaway comment from our dad about the way our belly was sticking out in a dancing tutu when we were eight years old through to the fact that we weren't invited to parties when we were however old and all that stuff. We then translate that and go, oh, I'm not worthy. I'm not enough as I am right here. So we have all these different storylines playing out in our life and we're set up for that to be you know, get even worse and worse just from our, our human brains. And so over time, we become this passive character in our story. We start to feel powerless over how we've got to where we are and then also what that means for us moving forward. We stay loyal and, and close and um, ingrained in these patterns that are so painful and all these, all these defense mechanisms that are causing us so much distress, but they're familiar. And so we, we keep in the character that we know more than the character that we could be, but it's terrifying to take that, that unknown path. It wasn't until I saw that guy's video on YouTube that my meaning-making ability became way more clear, accurate, but most of all, that context started to be added back into my life. Now, the first thing that happened was just an overwhelming sense of it's okay to be me and that this guy showed me that I could be understood and that I could bring all these parts of myself that were totally unintegrated back in because I saw him in this whole being being completely normal, being completely broken and completely fine in the same same instance that I then knew it was possible. It also encouraged me then to go and take steps around, well, what about my life have I not worked out? You know, it led me down exploring some of my family dynamics and my relationship with my dad in particular as a child. 
and how his story was affected by other stories. The context that he'd grown up in was incredibly painful, and some of the, some of the inadequacies that I was carrying for decades as a son wasn't a reflection on me as a son. It was actually a reflection of his inability to feel loved as a child too. And that, that there were genetics in my family that were going to predispose me to this and that it was nothing short of a diabetic not having the insulin that they needed and so therefore didn't feel bad about the crashes in their, in their energy because of the engine not having the oil. And same goes here. There are things in my brain that, that were just physically making it hard to operate as a productive driver of the car. And so when I added this environmental and this genetic context in, I started to let go of a lot of the shame. And I started to get space back in my life to actually be present with who I, who I really was. And again, it doesn't mean that we're getting better immediately. What it does mean is that we now have the space that we need to go and get help. And a lot of it is help in and of itself. By feeling understood, by feeling connected, by feeling seen, that takes away a bunch of the pain. And whatever's left, we then can deal with in, in this new stable place of we're more than the character in our story that we've been telling us ourselves. And that we can bring down the walls of defense, have an island to retreat to inside ourselves, and that we don't need to hurt like this anymore. Heart on my sleeve um, kind of started as an accident by a story that went viral from me and then viral from a lot of others. And then we sort of sat back and went, well, what is this? What, what can this be? And it kind of rallied around that core sentiment that what do humans need? Well, we need to feel, we need to feel understood and we need to be real because real is an acronym and a value we talk about. As a value, it's, you know, how do we be authentic? How do we bring our true selves to, to life? And usually we can be real by following the acronym, relating to someone who gets it, embracing who we are, authentically acting from that place, and then letting go of the old story and making way for the new. So it's our time now to be real. And Heart on My Sleeve movement is advocating for that. In, the, in our society today, mental health is the single biggest issue facing our generation. It, we're in a state of emergency. One in four people suffer from a mental health condition. And it's the biggest life killer. Suicide takes more lives than anything else between the ages of 19 to 40 in Australia. We have so much work to do. And the same is true in the corporate space. You know, when we walk in those four doors, we have to put on the mask. Leaders are frustrated. They want to have the conversations with their employees, but they don't know how. It's not just the problem we need to reconsider. It is the way that we're solving the issue. We need to move from simply awareness campaigns of telling everyone how, how bad things are and actually start changing behavior. We need to go into a state where everyone knows how bad things are. What are we doing about it? What are we doing to show someone 
it's okay to talk and they physically go do that? How do we lead by example and practically teach people with real people and real stories being told so that it's not just a concept? It's indoctrinated in our culture. How do we move away from just this passive understanding that someone else is going to ask us if we're okay when we need help, that everyone's supposed to be mind readers, to a culture that's proactive, where people who are going through it feel like they have the tools and the channels and the permission to say, well, I don't know if I'm okay and I want to speak up for myself, I should be empowered to own that conversation and to take accountability of my wellness. It's also a movement away from a transaction, but more toward a relationship. You know, at the moment, I think as a society, we acknowledge how important conversations are and that people can't do it on their own. But we focus on what is said between a supporter and someone experiencing mental ill health versus the actual bond and connection that underpins this conversation. We don't address what can go wrong or come up within the relationship during the process to getting better. So people feel confused and freeze up when conflict arises on the journey towards someone confiding in another for help. It's these subtleties of human connection that's far more complex than just the script of words, which I think where we're currently at. It's also a movement away from the peripheries, toward the heart of the conversation. A lot of the resources available today usually sit on either side of the spectrum where we're dealing with acute mental health crises on one side, like suicide, or self-help on the other. We need to be able to manage the space in between, the daily conversation that we often don't know how to show up for, that goes on for months and potentially even years. Um, that is really what we're building towards. That's the content that we need. That's the learning curriculum that we need. That's the places that we can go and chat when we know that it's not this quick fix, it's not fluffy, but it's also not something where we're trying to ring the alarm bells for first aid. We need to get used to being in it with people. We've got to learn how to ride it out as a supporter and as an experiencer, we need to learn to find our voice own that shit in a way that's authentic and safe and impactful. Heart on my sleeve wants to contribute to this. You know, now we are a, a full organization. We're a charity, social enterprise. We're a, we're a thing. And I think that we are in the best position possible to lead and transform the mental health conversation globally. The main reason why that is, other than all the reasons that I just said and all the changes in the movement toward this new world that we need to create, is because we're raw. We're not overthinking it. It's not this organization with, you know, these bells and whistles and, and someone professional being like, this is how you should live. No, instead of walking around the well that someone's trapped down and throwing them an instruction book of how to get out, what we do is we attach a a safety lock at the top and we abseil down. We give them a rope and we climb back up with them and say, this is my journey. I think you should follow. Or here are some options. I've been through it. It's that realness, that sense of authenticity, that sense of just the people sitting around sharing real shit that has been missing. 
And we're here to bring that back. We want to create a place where people come to feel seen and be heard. But at the end of the day, we're just about helping people tell and receive stories of one another's true self, the good, the bad, and the in-between, so that we can finally accept where we are. Everything else comes from accepting where we are. And often we can't do that until we relate to someone who gets us. Heart on My Sleeve is quickly becoming synonymous with positive mental well-being, particularly in Australia, where we're based, but also all around the world. It started uh, in May, May 30th, actually, 2017, as I said, where I shared that video and, and, and here we are. Uh, as things progressed, um, we now find ourselves, you know, launching a podcast like this where we don't just want people to tell stories of what they've been through, but we want, we want to create content ourselves. We want to create these flagship stories that people can, can take inspiration from, from noteworthy people who they just wouldn't expect have shit going on. And then we also want to interview experts that can have just a, a casual, heartfelt chat that we can get insights from and let people become more confident towards telling their story. The main thing we're trying to do here is to get more people to have a conversation. 70% of people suffering from a mental health condition don't speak up about what they're going through, which means only 30% do. And we want to double that. We want to double the the help-seeking speaking up rate in the next five years to 60%. In Australia, that's about 1.8 million conversations. And globally, that's 135 million conversations. We also want people to feel more confident in speaking up, not just do you do it. We first got to make you feel confident to do so. And that comes from seeing inspiring stories from other people, learning how to do that in the right way, and then practicing that. And finally, we want people to feel like they're judging themselves less. We're not so concerned about public stigma. I mean, what people think of us is their business. I'm concerned with what do I think about me? That's the stigma we're going after, self-stigma. So where to next? Over the course of the next few weeks and months, you'll be hearing from a bunch of people, experts, um, regular people, celebrities, but people who you just wouldn't expect to have shit going on in the background. And we want to give you guys insight into you're not as crazy as you think and that you can be and live a life that is manageable and peaceful when you let yourself start a new chapter. In advance, thank you for being on this journey with me. I am incredibly humbled every day to show up for work and um, hear from everyone around how this is helping them, how stories have changed their life and how there is a new movement towards something different, something where that person who's lying in bed at night can finally sleep knowing that they can be accepted and that they can accept themselves. Thank you. And as I always say, go slow, go strong, one moment at a time. We're all on the journey.